We're beginning a four-week series starting today called Songs of Our Savior. Um, we did it at Christmas where we looked at some of the most beloved Christmas hymns. And now we're going to, um, I'm gonna preach through and show the biblical foundations for some of the most beloved uh, traditional hymns in the history of the church. I'm gonna be preaching this week and next week. And then on the third week, Bill Cole is gonna be preaching, um, which I'm excited about. And so if you uh, love Bill like I do, that'll be fun. Um, I've been bugging him since I got here saying, bro, you need to preach. And so uh, I finally talked him into it. But today we're gonna, we're gonna look at, look at the biblical foundations for what is in my opinion, maybe one of the greatest songs that's ever been written is certainly one of the most beloved hymns that's ever been written in the history of the church and that is Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. I looked it up and Come Thou Fount was written by a young English pastor named Robert Robinson in 1758. It's been around for quite a while. Back when he was young, his father died when he was 14. This is, he was not a, not a believer. His father died when he was 14. Because of that, he became really bitter and he began to give his mom a lot of trouble. And you know, it's Mother's Day. A lot of us could raise our hands and say, we were the same way when we were 14. But he started giving his mom trouble because of the bitterness he had at the loss of his father. So his mom got to the point where she's like, look, I can't handle this kid anymore. So she, uh, this, he, they're from England. And so she sent him to London where he um, began to work in an apprenticeship as he worked in his apprenticeship, things got worse. His troublemaking got worse. He actually formed a street gang that hung out in the streets of London. And that's what he did for three years until he was 17 years old. When he was 17, an acquaintance of his invited him to come hear the preaching of famous American pastor George Whitfield, who might've been one of the greatest preachers that's ever walked the face of the earth. Robinson reluctantly went and after, the, after hearing his uh, Whitfield sermon, he gave his life to Jesus. In his own words, Robinson said, I received the full and free forgiveness of God through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And shortly after his salvation, about three years later, he began to feel a call to preach, to go into the ministry and preach the gospel. And I, I didn't find out how this happened, but he was actually appointed to be a pastor by John Wesley himself. And he became the pastor of the Calvinist Methodist Chapel of Norfolk, England. So yes, even Calvinist Methodists can write good hymns. And what he wrote, or let me go back and tell you when he wrote, it was his third anniversary as a pastor. It was on Pentecost Sunday. And he wanted to write a hymn that would go along with his sermon because he was preaching on the never ending grace of God. And so on his third anniversary, the week before Pentecost Sunday, he sat down and he wrote what would become known as Come Now Fount of Every Blessing. And as I studied it, guys, what struck me is that this is one of the most theologically rich and deep song that have ever been written. And what hit me is the kid was 22 years old when he wrote it. 22 years old. When I was 22 years old, I maybe could have written a song with the theological depth of Jesus loves the little children, right? Maybe, maybe. But this guy wrote one of the richest, deepest theological songs that has ever been written. Let me just read very quickly the lyrics to you. It says, come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy 
never ceasing, calls for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. And I hope that by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. For Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. So to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. And so let your goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Wow, isn't that good? Dude was 22 years old. When he wrote that song, I am in awe of that. And I, don't, I, I would imagine there's this 22-year-old kid, I can call a 22-year-old kid a kid now, but when he was 22 years old, he's sitting at his desk by candlelight the week before Pentecost Sunday, and he's writing that song. I would imagine that he had no idea that 250 years later, churches all over the world would be singing that song. And as I thought about it, I'm convinced that the reason Come Now Fount has resonated so powerfully with so many generations on so many continents for three centuries now is this, and I want you to hear this, because it speaks so powerfully to a tension that so many of us feel in our walks with Christ. It's a song that speaks to a tension that so many of us feel in our walks with Christ. And here's the tension. We know we're saved. We've trusted in Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we love God. We love him. But we let him down. We fail. We sin. We want to obey God. We desire to obey God. We strive to obey God. But we still let him down and fail and sin, and at times we find our hearts wandering away from this God that we love so much. Well, this song speaks really powerfully to that tension. Listen to the final verse that Robinson wrote. This is so often um, the verse that we just start singing at the top of our lungs. It says, I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. So here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Now, I don't know about you, but that resonates with me. Does it resonate with anybody else in here? <laughs> my entire life, I've seen this in my heart. Guys, I want you to know that I love Jesus Christ more than anything in this world. He is the love of my life. But my heart is prone to wonder. That's why this, this song resonates with me. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced that this song would have resonated with the Apostle Paul. In Romans 7, 18, and this is Paul speaking, and he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, 
but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That's the apostle Paul. And I have a feeling that if Paul could have heard the song and sung the song, he would have said, that is me. I love God. I want to follow God. I want to serve God. But my heart is prone to wander. And so I believe that the reason that this song has resonated with so many generations of Christians is because it speaks to this amazing reality that while our hearts are prone to wonder that we serve a God that loves us and pursues us and holds on to us despite our wondering hearts. It speaks to that so, so powerfully. Now, as I was thinking about preaching through the theological foundations of this song, one of the biggest struggles that I came up with is where do I start? Because I literally could have taken each one of the verses and preached a single sermon on each one, but I got a feeling that y'all wanna go to lunch. And so what I did is I just picked three of the verses today. I'm gonna walk through uh, them quickly and we'll be done. I'm actually gonna start in one of the middle verses because it talks about the beginning of his story. Let me read this to you. He wrote, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. Jesus sought me when I was a stranger wandering from the fold of God. Sage mind, I love that. I love the realization that Robinson has that as he looks back on his life, he realizes something. He realizes that he was not the one that sought Jesus, but that Jesus was the one that sought him. Robinson, think about it, Robinson was a a 17-year-old bitter troublemaker in a London street gang. And I promise you, he did not wake up one morning and think, you know what? Here's what I'm gonna do today. I'm gonna go listen to a guy preach. And then I'm gonna surrender my entire life to Christ. I'm gonna give up all of my sin and I'm gonna become a Methodist preacher and then write one of the greatest songs in the history of the Christian church. I promise you, he was not thinking that was gonna happen. He was not pursuing that. I guarantee you that he wrote that line because he, as he looks back on his life, it hits him like a ton of bricks that he did not find Jesus, but Jesus found him, which is exactly what Jesus said he would do. Let me read this to you. This is Matthew 18, 12. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it. You didn't find Jesus. I didn't find Jesus, Jesus found us. Paul talks about this thing in Romans 3. In Romans 3.10, Paul says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understand and no one seeks for God. We didn't find Jesus. We weren't looking for him. Jesus found us. You know, I have a friend who's a pastor in Chicago, a huge church in Chicago, and they have a um, 
kind of a byline of their church, it's their mission statement of their church, and it's this, it says, um, here at So-and-So Church, we're helping people find their way back to God. Helping people find their way back to God. And I get what they're saying, but here's the thing, and friend, if you're listening, I apologize, but I don't really like that. (laughs) Primarily because I just think it's unbiblical. Scripture couldn't be any clearer that we don't find Jesus, but Jesus finds us. Now, you've gotta accept him, You've gotta trust in him as your Lord and Savior. You have to receive him. You gotta say yes to him, but make no mistake, what Robinson is saying was his story. And if you're a believer in this room today, this is your story. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. And the watch what he writes next, this is so powerful. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering, from the fold of God, and he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Now I promise you, when I was 22, I couldn't have written that because I didn't know what uh, interposed means. And it hit me this week, I still don't know what it means. And so I looked it up, and it's really cool. It's really cool, check this out. Interpose means to stand in between something means to stand in between something. And so he writes that he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. That's such a great line because not only does he say that I didn't find Jesus, but Jesus found me. But then he says, I didn't rescue me from the penalty of my sin, but Jesus rescued me from the penalty of my sin. How did he do that? Because he interposed his precious blood. Everybody look at me. What he's literally saying is that Jesus' blood stands in between me and the penalty of my sin. Isn't that good? I hope you, every time you sing this song from here on out that you have that picture in your mind. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. And if the blood does not intervene, if the blood of Christ is not interposed, if the blood does not stand in between you and your sin, then the wages of sin is death, but Christ has shed his blood, and now he can interpose his blood and stand between you and the penalty of your sin. So these lines, just, I love them. The more I've studied them, they speak so powerfully to the reality that when, when, when you weren't looking for him, he found you, put you on his shoulders, and carried you home rejoicing. And when you could never save yourself, He saved you, he rescued you. And guys, this is such an important theological truth for us to get our minds around and hang with me here. Because I think we have a bad habit of making ourselves the star of our salvation story. I think we have a bad habit of putting ourselves at the center of our salvation story. And make no mistake, you play a big role but you're not the star of your salvation story, Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is. When we are asked, how did you become a Christian? We say things like, and I do it. We say things like, I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. How'd you become a Christian? I trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior. We have a bad habit of putting I at the center of the story. And look, those are true statements. You can't be saved unless you say them and do them. 
but you are not the star of your salvation story. Jesus is. I recently heard a sermon by Alistair Begg. This is one of the, I'm about to show you a two minute clip because I thought I could just recap it for you, but he's got the coolest Scottish accent ever. And so I'm just gonna show you a little two minute clip of his sermon. And this is one of the coolest things I've ever heard in my life. Put your seatbelt on, watch this. Isn't that great? That was so much better than me trying to recap that. On what basis are you here? The man on the middle cross said I can come. I agree with Alistair Begg, Pastor Begg 100%. If when you get to heaven, I don't know if the Lord will ask us this or not, but if he asks you, why should I let you? into my kingdom, your answer better not start with because I. If I'm asked that question, Matt, why should I let you into my kingdom? I don't know about you, but the first thing I'm doing is pointing at Jesus Christ. I'm gonna say because of him, because of him. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, and he to rescue me from danger and interpose his precious blood. Now let's look at the next part of the song because it talks about what our response should be in light of this great grace. 
This amazing grace we've been shown by Jesus Christ. Robinson writes, so to grace, in other words, in light of grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. So to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. He's saying that in light of the amazing grace that I've been shown through Jesus Christ, that my response is that I am obligated to follow Jesus completely and totally all day, every day for the rest of my life. Let me ask you guys a question. When you think about all that Christ has done for you, when you think about all that he has done for you, do you feel that level of obligation? When you think about everything that Jesus has done for you, is your response, oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. I really do think that ought to be our response. Talked about it the last couple of weeks, Pastor Stewart and I. But when you look at the cross, you look at the resurrection, you look at the words of Jesus, what other response do we have but to go all in? Listen to how Peter describes himself at the beginning of 2 Peter. You've probably read this 100 times and never paid any attention to it. But listen to how Peter describes himself. 2 Peter 1.1. Peter's writing and calls himself Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Pretty simple enough. At the beginning of his letter, Peter says, I'm Simon Peter, I'm a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, we hear that, and we think, well, yeah, of course, Peter. You're a servant of Christ. You're one of the 12 disciples. You're one of the leaders of the New Testament church. Of course, you're gonna serve Jesus. But then when you actually look at the word there in the original language, you realize that there is something much deeper, much more profound that Peter is trying to convey. Look at the word servant there. The word servant in the Greek is the Greek word doulos. The word doulos really doesn't mean servant. A much better, more accurate translation of doulos is a slave. It's a slave. The English translators leave it out because they don't want to offend everybody or anybody, but make no mistake, what Peter is, is not saying, he's not saying, hey, everybody, my name's Peter, and, and since Jesus has been really good to me, then I'm going to serve him. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, hey, everybody, my name is Peter, and I am a slave of Jesus Christ. It's pretty strong language, is it not? He's saying with that statement, I've given up my rights. I've given up my rights. I, I have willingly attached myself solely and completely to the person of Jesus. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Why does Peter use that kind of language? Why? I think he calls himself a slave of Christ because as he, looked, as he looks back on his life, he realizes that the only reason he is where he's at is not because of anything he did, but because of Jesus Christ. And what other response could he have but to say, I'm all in? He probably remembered that he was just a fisherman doing his thing, living his life, catching some fish, minding his own business, and all of a sudden this guy walks up to him, knew his name, called him Simon Peter and said, Peter, I'm gonna make you something greater than a fisherman. I'm gonna make you a fisher of men. He realized that Jesus sought him 
when he was a stranger wandering from the fold of God. I'm convinced Peter calls himself a slave of Christ because as he looks back on his life, he remembers, even though Jesus was the one that called him into ministry, he probably remembered all the times that he failed Jesus. Guys, Peter was a mess up, y'all with me? He was always saying stupid stuff. He was always doing stupid stuff. He was always messing up big time. Peter probably remembered that in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was about to face the cross and Jesus was sweating blood, asking the father if there's any other way. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, would you just please pray for me? And what did Peter do? He fell asleep. I bet that haunted him, would have haunted me. He probably remembers that Jesus in his most important sermon, the Sermon on the Route, said, love your enemies. And yet when the Roman soldiers showed up that night, Peter pulled out a sword and chopped off the ear of one of the Roman soldiers. Probably regretted that for a long time, I'm thinking. Jesus reached up and healed the guy's ear. He probably remembers later on that night when Jesus needed him the most, he denied that he even knew Christ three times Peter calls himself, I'm convinced, the slave of Christ because he remembers that even after the resurrection, he was so discouraged by the fact that he denied Jesus that Peter quit. Did you know that? Peter quit, took off, told the disciples, I'm going fishing, I'm done, I'm out. But listen to this. The story's always been amazing to me. Peter quit, Peter left, he denied Jesus and just rolled. And despite all Peter's failures, despite all Peter's shortcomings, Jesus never gave up on him. Jesus never gave up on him. But instead, when Peter gave up and quit and walked away, Jesus went after him. Jesus pursued him. Jesus met him on the beach and cooked him breakfast and called him back into the ministry and then raised him up to be one of the primary leaders of a movement that would change the course of history. So Peter knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the only reason that he is where he's at is because of Jesus. And so he calls himself a slave of Christ because this is Peter's story. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, but he, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood and so too grace. How great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. And so I'll ask you guys again, as you think about all that Jesus has done in your life, do you feel that level of obligation? If you don't, something's wrong. You don't obey God in order to be saved. You obey God because you're saved. You don't obey God to get the grace of God. You obey God because he's given you the grace. It's a response. And so if you don't feel, if there's not at least a desire in your heart to say, Jesus, I wanna give you everything. I mess up, I fail, but I really want to. If there's not a desire there, something's wrong. If there's not a desire for that, either you're not saved to begin with or you haven't, it's never really hit you everything that Jesus has done for you as a believer. When I struggle with this, when I find myself in a place where my heart is wondering, one of the things that I've learned to do is to think about what my life would have been like without Jesus. You ever done that? 
you're a believer here today, I'm speaking to you, just taking like 60 seconds and thinking about what would my life have been like had Jesus not sought me when a stranger and interposed his precious blood in my life. I, I think about it pretty regularly. One of the things that I'm reminded of is that Jesus completely changed my eternity. Guys, I was just like everybody. I was on the road to hell. I was on the road to separation from God for all eternity, but he sought me when a stranger and interposed his precious blood. I, I, I think about the fact that Jesus radically transformed the direction of my family. As far back as we can trace it, and we can trace it back to my great-great-grandfather, but as far back as we can trace the Carter men, the Carter men are historically hard-drinking, hard-charging, hard-living womanizers. And I had no doubt would have been the same, but Jesus sought me when a stranger and interposed his precious blood. And now, even though my Children are not perfect. I wanna tell you something. When he found me, interposed his blood, it changed my life and that completely changed the direction of my family. My children aren't perfect, but every single one of them loves Jesus and is spending their life pursuing the glory of God. That's because of him, it's not because of me. I think about the fact that he completely changed the direction of my marriage so you may always think, well, Matt, you're a pastor. You should have a perfect marriage. Oh, no. <laughs> I've shared this before. Jennifer and I have been married 25 years. There's been about two times in our marriage. We went through really difficult times, and I'm telling you right now, as we look back on it, it was because of Jesus that we kept fighting for our marriage. It was only because of Jesus that we stayed together during those times when we didn't want to stay together. And it was because of Jesus. It's only because of Jesus that through those 25 years, we've overcome those obstacles and are now better friends and more in love than we've ever been. That is because of Jesus. It's certainly not because of us, because we would have failed over and over and over again. And guys, more than anything, more than anything, I, I think about Christ. He's radically changed me. I know me better than anybody else. And I've seen me grow in kindness. I've seen me grow in patience. I've seen me grow in self-control. I've seen these areas of my life that I just can't explain apart from Jesus Christ. And so think about it for just a second. What would you have been like? What would your life have been like had Jesus not interposed his precious blood? And what other response could we possibly have but owe to grace how great a debtor daily? I'm constrained to be. Let's, uh, let's start landing the plane here today by looking at that one little peculiar line in the song. You probably know what I'm talking about. Robinson wrote this. And uh, if you don't look it up or Google it, you really probably or hadn't read the Bible and understand, you probably, probably don't even know what it means. But it's another time when, he's, when Robinson's looking back at his life and he writes this. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come. I love that word, hither. He says, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. Now what in the world is an Ebenezer? 
And why is Robinson trying to raise it, okay? Well, that line actually comes from a, um, a story found in the book of 1 Samuel. It's a cool story. God's people, the Israelites, were being pursued by their arch enemies, the Philistines. And the Israelites were scared to death. And so they holler at the prophet Samuel. And they say, Samuel, Philistines are over there. They look like they're upset. They're about to attack us. Samuel, would you please cry out to God for his help? All right, watch what happens. First Samuel 7, 8. The people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease, don't stop to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And so Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Now watch this. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. In verse 10, and Samuel, as Samuel rather, was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. Look at the last part of that verse right there. The last part of the verse. It says the Philistines were defeated before Israel. So Israel won the battle, right? Sorta. They won, but why did they win? They won because the Lord thundered with a mighty sound and threw the Philistines into confusion. Yes, Israel won the battle, but it was the Lord that won the battle for them. If God had not helped, if God had not intervened, if God had not showed up, the Philistines would have taken them out that day. And so what's fascinating is after the, uh, after the battle, the, the Israelites were celebrating because they'd won this great victory over their enemies. But I want you to watch what Samuel does. He doesn't celebrate. He raises an Ebenezer. First Samuel seven twelve. Israel's going nuts and verse 12, it says, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name as Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. And so Israel's going nuts because of their victory. But Samuel quietly goes over to the side and he gets this big stone and he sets it down and he calls the stone Ebenezer. It means a stone of remembrance. It means a stone of help. You see, Samuel raised an Ebenezer because he never wanted to forget that the only reason they won the battle, he raised an Ebenezer because he never wanted to forget that the only reason they were victorious, he raised an Ebenezer, a stone of remembrance to remind himself that the only reason they were alive is because of the help of the Lord. And so Robinson writes, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help. I've come. In modern English, that literally means here I raise a stone of remembrance because God, it's only been by your help that I've made it this far. 
It's only been by your help, God, that I have made it this far. That was his way of saying, I'm prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. And so the fact that I'm still walking with you, Jesus, the fact that I still love you, the fact that I have an ounce of faith is not because of my willpower. It's not because I'm an amazing Christian. It's not because of me at all, Lord. It's because of you. And as often, God, as I've tried to let you go, God, you've never let go of me. And Sage, what I'm telling you right now, once again, that's exactly what Jesus said he would do. In John 10, 27, this is Jesus speaking. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now watch this, verse 28. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's my favorite promise in the Bible of Jesus. I love that he's given us eternal life, but I love this one just as much. Because what he's saying is that when Jesus interposed his precious blood in my life, that when his blood now stands, because his blood now stands between me and the penalty of my sin, because of that, he picks me up. He puts me in his hand. And what he's promising you is even if you let go of me, I will never let go of you. And that is the best news I have ever heard. And I'm gonna tell you, that might not relate You might not relate to that, but I'm telling you, I relate to that verse because if there's anybody in the Bible that I can relate to, it's Peter. Got any folks like that in here that when you read about Peter, you're like, whoop, that's me. Always saying dumb stuff, always getting in trouble. Always letting the Lord down. I can't tell you how many times I've failed God. I can't tell you how many times I've doubted over the years. I can't tell you how many times, guys, I've tried to run away and I'm telling you, Jesus will not let me go. Not because I've got hold of him, because he's got hold of me. And I'm gonna end today with telling you one story. Um, Could have told several, but I'm gonna tell you one and and then we'll be done. (laughs) To illustrate this, I, I planted the, church in Austin about 20 years ago now. Started it from scratch, which is not easy to do. And after 15 years of pastoring the church, I woke up one day and it, I just had a realization, you know, after 15 years, I, I'm exhausted. Like I'm mentally, physically, and spiritually exhausted. And on top of that, I was emotionally exhausted. One of the things that you guys may not realize about being a pastor, like we have about 4,000 people that come on a Sunday to Sagemont, and you may not know this, but all 4,000 people that come to this church have an opinion about how the church is supposed to be run. <laughs> all 4,000. And, and so it's, it's, it's impossible to keep everybody happy. And so as a pastor, because of that, a lot of times, it doesn't matter how well things are going, you constantly let people down. You, you constantly disappoint people. I know this is crazy, but I'm human. Um, so you constantly let people down and you don't meet their expectations. And a lot of times people will let you know, and that's okay. But what people don't realize when they come to let you know that you've disappointed them and let them down, 
is they probably are not thinking about the five other people that have done that same thing that week or that day, right? And if it were just kind of one thing, it's okay, you know. But what happens is those, that negativity, those disappointments, they start piling up over the days and the weeks and the years and start weighing on your heart. And so about 15 years in, for the first time in my time as a, as a, as a pastor, I started fantasizing about leaving the ministry. Just being real transparent with you guys today, if you don't like, don't like transparency, you don't like me, I'm just gonna shoot you straight. 15 years in, I started fantasizing about leaving the ministry. I even prayed and asked God, I was like, God, can I get out? Can I leave? Prayed for a couple months, just asking him, Lord, would you let me go? And about two months later, it was deer season. I have a buddy that's actually a billionaire with a B. And he has this ranch near College Station. It's the most amazing ranch ever. Um, And we were hunting and when we got done hunting, we were driving around on the ranch. And out of the blue, I didn't bring it up. He brought it up. Out of the blue, he looks at me. He said, Matt, have you ever thought about leaving the ministry? And I said, actually, yes, I have. Why do you say that? He said, man, I've been thinking a lot about you. He's got this massive, he lives in Houston, got this massive company in Houston. You may have heard his name, but he said, I've been looking for like a corporate chaplain, somebody that can oversee my entire company's just mental, physical, spiritual health. And he goes, I think you would be perfect for this. And then he threw a number at me. He said, I think I'd like to start you at $1.2 million a year. And angels started singing. (laughs) Angels started singing. And I heard the voice of the Lord. (laughs) And right then and there, guys, true story. This is gonna sound so nuts to you, but I'm telling you, all this happened right then and there. I made the decision, I'm out. In the truck. I received that as, a, as an answered prayer. And so we're sitting there driving around talking about what that would look like when I might get started. I kid you not, I got a phone call while I was in the truck and it was my doctor's number. I'd had a spot removed right here from this ear. If you're ever close to me, look at it. There's a hole, like a big divot in my ear right here. I'd had a spot removed a couple of days earlier. They didn't think much about it. But it was three days after I got the spot removed. It was my doctor and I'm like, uh-oh. I said, hey man, hold on one second. I took a phone call. I had melanoma. God didn't at the time know what stage it was yet. And melanoma late stage is not good. And so I literally stopped the conversation. I said, man, I got to go. I have cancer. Went home. Turns out a couple days later, we found out it was super, super early stage. Um, And so things started calming down. Um, We started talking again, ramping up details about how to do it. And I can't go into the details today. Someday I may tell y'all, but um, we were starting to talk again and and somebody made an attempt to kill me. Um, They they did not um, give me a death threat. They tried to kill me. The FBI was involved. Um, You've heard about this before. You just don't realize it was me and I'm not gonna go, go into it today. But um, here I am, I've got this offer and I'm thinking, my gosh, if people are trying to kill me, I'm really out. 
I'm out. So we're talking, but then this crazy thing happens. Well, everything started calming down again. We start talking. As God is my witness, I'm on the phone with the guy again talking about it, and my son calls. And my son never calls unless he needs money or something's wrong. I'm like, hey, man, let me me take this real quick. So I took it. My son sounds frantic. He's crying. And he says, Dad, I've been in a horrible accident. They're taking me to Seton Hospital. Hungs up the phone. Get in the truck. About an hour away. Drive like a madman to Seton Hospital. First and only time in my entire life I've ever yelled at God. I'm screaming in the truck, God, what are you doing? God, what are you doing? If you're gonna kill somebody, God, kill me. Don't kill my son. Don't take my son, take me. If you gotta take somebody, take me. Long story short, J.D. was fine. But after the melanoma and the, the, the murder attempt and my son, who the, the DPS guy said he'd never seen someone walk away from an accident that bad, I was shook up. I think that was on a Friday, Matt, I can't remember. I was supposed to preach that Sunday. So I called one of my pastor buddies there at my church. I said, I can't preach. I can't preach. I was done. I was done. So this guy told me he'd preach for me. He said, absolutely. That Sunday morning I got up, I didn't even want to go to church. Somehow I I talked myself into going. I was just numb in my heart, mind made up, I was out. Went and sat on the front row there of the Austin Stone. Guy gets up and he starts preaching from the book of Jonah. Y'all see where this is going? If you're new to church and you wonder, want to know why everybody's giggling, it's because Jonah is a book about a man running from the call of God on his life. And so God grabs him and puts him where he wants him. He starts off, here, here was the, t- I'm almost done, y'all hang with me. Here was the text he was preaching from this morning, I kid you not. Jonah 1.1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. So God calls him to go to Nineveh. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid a fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Look at at verse 4. Never paid any attention to this verse till that day. But the Lord hurled a great storm upon the sea. Who hurled the storm, church? The Lord. But the Lord hurled a great storm upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest in the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Here is what Jonah is about. Jonah was running from the call of God on his life like crazy. He's trying to go to Tarshish. So he gets in a boat and the Lord hurled a storm at him. He ends up out of the boat, well picks him up and takes him exactly where God wanted him to be. And I'm sitting there thinking, you got to be kidding me. 
And if that were not enough, you think I'm making this up, go ask that man right there. Matt Kirk, he was in the room. Pastor's preaching. He's standing there at the pulpit. It's actually this exact pulpit we had in my previous church. And he stops right in the middle. Kind of looks up. Walks over to the side. He says, this is really weird, but I have the strongest feeling right now that I'm supposed to do this. He goes, I, this is weird. I've never done anything like this before. But he said, I have the strongest feeling I'm supposed to ask this question. He goes, and by the way, he had no idea what was going on in my life. He goes, if you're here and you've been running from the call of God on your life and the Lord is hurling storms at you to get you where he wants you to go, would you stand up? Founding pastor, Matt Carter, sitting right there. And I knew in that moment, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that was God talking to me. You think it's not, you're crazy. I lost it. I started weeping and I stood up. Everybody's like, what's Matt doing? <laughs> Standing up in front. And in that moment, I completely surrendered. And I said, God, I'll never leave you again as long as I live. I'm going to tell you something, guys. As I look back on my life, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the reason I'm standing on this stage today is not because of me. It's because of Jesus. The reason that I'm still walking with him is not because I never let him go. I've let him go a bunch of times. It's because he never let go of me. I don't care how many times you've sinned. I don't care many, how many times you've tried to walk away or tried to run. If you're here today and you have the faith of a mustard seed, if you just have a sliver of faith left in you, that is because Jesus has a hold of you. And here's the promise. He says he'll never let you go. So as we sing these words today, I hope they mean more to you than they ever have. Come now fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing your grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. So praise the mount. I'm fixed upon it. Mount of thy redeeming love.